What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 72 of the 2QB Experience. I'm your host. My name is Greg Smith. You can find me on Twitter at GregSauce. You can find all my work at 2QBs.com. Welcome to the show. Uh, It's a solo pod this week, and I'm trying something new. On this episode, I'm going to revisit an article that I wrote about two years ago called Breaking the Game X's and O's. It was meant to become like a series with the general goal of examining a game that's seemingly unrelated to fantasy sports and trying to find some relatable lessons. I, I mean, I've been a sports fan my entire life, but what really drew me to fantasy was how deep the strategy of the game could go and, and that theory could go. Fantasy isn't the only game that scratches that itch for me, that that desire to you know break down a complex strategy and... I I don't know, at different points in my life, I've been hooked by plenty of other games, you know, video games, board games, card games, you know, games you play at the bar or on your lawn with your buddies, you name it. Like, I I like all that stuff, and I I love thinking about the strategy that goes behind that. And I don't know how frequently I'll get back to the series. I mean, it took me two friggin' years for the second installment after that original article, but I hope to eventually tackle all sorts of different games in this kind of capacity and figure out how they can be related to fantasy sports that debut, or that would-be debut article, Breaking the Game, X's and O's, started out with the super simple game, Tic-Tac-Toe, and I encourage listeners to read it. Um, I'll share the link to that article via the show notes. Uh, but on today's show, I want to dive into a different game, and it's actually a game that I, I really dislike. It's it's the game of Monopoly. Uh, we're going to look for some similarities, uh, other strategic through lines to fantasy football, uh, but before we do that, a quick word from our sponsor... If you love drafting your fantasy team, imagine drafting a real professional team. The Fan-Controlled Football League is bringing fantasy sports and Madden franchise mode to a real football field. Fans will scout players, draft rosters, hire coaches and call plays, and more. The FCFL will feature eight professional teams playing 7-on-7, fast-paced, indoor football in a high-tech production studio built for a digital audience. This is the next generation of fantasy football where fans get rewarded for dominating through the league's proprietary fan token. To learn more about the fan token and the FCFL, visit fcfl.io. And so now let's dive into Monopoly. This is a game, like I said, I don't, I don't like this game. Um, like fantasy football, it has variants built in. You roll dice, you get a seemingly random number of spaces that you move each turn. Uh, there are some rules associated with that, right? If you roll doubles three times, you go to jail. If you roll doubles just you know the one time, you get to go again. Uh, there's all this stuff that you get to play around with, but ultimately that you don't necessarily know what's going to happen on any any given turn, and you kind of have to forecast chain of events. You have to figure out where the probabilities lie, and that's pretty similar to fantasy. I I mentioned that I don't really like Monopoly, and I think part of it is that I feel like every Monopoly game comes to a point where somebody decides effectively to give up and stop trying without actually quitting the game. They make a bad decision, they trade away, you know, some property they shouldn't trade away, or, uh, you know, they trade something to someone they shouldn't trade it to, uh, and you see this stuff happen in fantasy all the time. I think that's very relatable, um, but I want to kind of dive in and, and talk about a, a few different key aspects of similarity to me and uh, stuff that I think we can take away. The first section I'm going to call the value of free parking. And I'll start this with a question to you, the listener. When you play a game of Monopoly, what do you do with the free parking space on the board uh, in that corner after the second side uh, of the board? Some players will seed that seed the center of the board with some fixed amount of money, like fifty bucks, a hundred bucks, or whatever. And if somebody lands on free parking, they get that money. I've played with other people who, you know, every time you pay something to, uh, you know community chest or to a chance card you put that into the middle and then whenever someone lands on free parking 
you you or you get all the money that's that's in there at the time. I've even played with some people who every time you make any sort of payment to the bank or to chance or to community chest or anything, you put all that money into the center and then whoever lands on free parking wins that money. Do you know what the actual rule is for free parking in Monopoly? It's just a free space. It doesn't do anything. Technically, uh, a player landing on free parking does not receive any money, property, or reward of any kind. It's just a free resting place. That's you know more or less quoted from the rules of the game. And we want to apply this to fantasy. This is all to say that you absolutely need to know your league rules. How many roster spots do you have? How many flex players can you start? How do waivers work? When do the playoffs take place? Are they? Do you play into week 17? How many teams make the playoffs? You need to know the answers to all these types of questions before you start playing, because if you don't, you might be giving up some amount of strategic value. You know, if, if half the teams in your league make the playoffs, then you're going to want to make sure that you only, you only need to make the playoffs, right? And you want to gear your strategy towards dominating those final weeks of the season, if you know that your league plays in week 17, then you know that there's going to be a lot of random variance in that final week, and maybe you need to think about, okay, if I have a, a player on a team, like say it's week 10, and you have uh, the quarterback of, let's say you have Tom Brady and the Patriots are undefeated through 10 weeks of the season, chances are he's going to be resting in week 17, and if he's on your team, that might give you incentive to trade him away for some amount of value, right? In a 2QB league, Tom Brady would fetch you a pretty good return. But again, this only this is only like a small niche argument to be made if your league uses Week 17, right? And so you have to know the rules of your league. We harp on this all the time on the show. And I, I mean, I'm not the only person who talks about this, right? But you need to understand what you're getting into before you get into it so that you can apply your strategy accordingly. Uh, the next section I want to call Minimum Security Prison ain't so bad. Uh, Monopoly Jail, right? You, you can be sent to jail, but this is not... Oz. This is not the worst place you can be on the Monopoly board, and generally, patience can be a virtue in many things, including Monopoly. You can try to roll doubles to get out of jail, or just decide to pay the $50 fine, the bail, or whatever it takes you to get out of jail when you're there, but sometimes it can actually make sense to willingly stay behind bars. Uh, you know, lift some weights, visit the library, read some, some books, whatever. The penalty of jail in the game of Monopoly isn't really all that bad because when you're in there, you can still buy and sell property. You can still buy and sell houses and hotels and you can collect rent. The only thing you can't do in there is buy more property by naturally landing on spaces, by rolling the dice and ending up on a space to acquire that property. Uh, and there are certain stages of the game, especially early in the game, where that's all you want to do. So once you get into jail, you want to get the hell out of there and get back going around the board to try to pick up more pieces of the pie, try to make monopolies for yourself, you know, get all the same uh, properties in a certain color group so you can start building houses and, and maybe hotels eventually. But, you know, later in the game, if you're broke or if there isn't, uh, you know, much to gain by getting back into the action on the game board, there's no real incentive to shorten your sentence in jail. Uh, in fantasy, you've probably heard the phrase, don't overreact to week one, and, and that makes a lot of sense, right? Not all of your draft picks are going to realize their full potential right away. You need to be really patient in some cases with these players, and that's that's another takeaway we can get from you know landing in jail and monopoly. It's like sometimes it's okay to you know take a loss here and there because you've, you, you estimated the value of your players and of your team 
to last longer than just you know one week of the season, right? You didn't draft these guys just for week one. You draft them for the entire year. And in some cases, you have to stick that out. You have to just be like, okay, I'm going to sit on my laurels. I'm not going to overreact and pick up the hot waiver wire guy. I mean, sometimes that works out, but for the most part, it doesn't. You know, The guys that we evaluate as good in the preseason uh, tend to pan out that way long term. And the guys who you've never heard of that randomly blow up in week one or week two out of nowhere, chances are they're going to fade back away eventually. So kind of on the flip side of that coin, the next section I want to call opportunity is king. And this goes back to what I talked about earlier, where early in the game, you want to basically buy up whatever you can, because if you don't buy these properties when you land on them, you could lose them to someone else. And, you know, in fantasy drafts, this means trusting your valuations and and picking the players that you believe in, right? Like, you might feel like somebody is, is worth more than their ADP, and it's okay to act on that feeling, right? It, you, you put in the research, you did the analytical side of things to, to figure out why you like this player. Maybe it's narrative-based, who, who knows? But if there's a reason you like a player, you should be willing to pounce on that player in the draft. And it, it, we can take that to in-season as well, right? And that means being aggressive in free agency and on waivers. And, and again, I say this is contrary to what I was just talking about with being patient, but there are times when you need to get ahead of the curve. You need to be the first guy to be on a player because you forecast, again, through sound analytical you know, process, you forecast that that player is going to have more value down the road. And if you can sniff that out ahead of your opponents, then that could be a big windfall for you. You know, in 2QB and Superflex League specifically, this often means picking up you know, a notable backup quarterback before they officially become starters. Uh, and in Monopoly, you might necessarily want to buy a light blue property on that first row of the board, you know, on your first, you know, go round, because, you know, maybe the return on investment isn't quite as good as the other properties on the board, and you want to save your money to make sure you can afford those. But, you know, that first time you land there might be your only opportunity to make that purchase of that property, either before an opponent lays claim or before you run out of money to be able to buy it in the first place, right? The next time you get there, you might not be able to afford it. And again, every time you pass on not buying a property, that means that somebody else could buy it if they land on it. And the whole point of the game is to build up monopolies. The more properties you have, the more trade chips you have to complete your own monopolies or just to naturally get there, right? If you happen to land on three of the same color independently, you buy them all, you have a monopoly, you can start building houses and eventually hotels, maybe. And translating that to fantasy football, you you can look at your bench, right? You look at the players that you have there. You don't necessarily want every different possibility. You want the best players, but at the same time, you can't have all the best players. Your opponents are naturally going to be able to get some of the other guys in the NFL that you would like to have on your fantasy team. So it's, it's really about roster optimization at that point, right? You're trying to use your bench spots and use your active lineup to the best of your ability. You're trying to squeeze the most value out of all those spots. And a lot of the time, that means actively churning through guys on the waiver wire you know if if something doesn't pan out you got to be willing to cut bait uh you know if if a guy you know looks like he's going to have a role for a while and then you know maybe in let, let's say you have let's say you own jordy nelson last year and you were feeling pretty good about that he was doing okay but then aaron Rodgers gets hurt right at that point you don't necessarily know how good jordy nelson is going to be i mean you you kind of assume that he's going to be okay because he's a good player uh but you know, he is getting a little older and, you know, lo and behold, you watch one game and Brett Hundley can't do anything for Jordy Nelson. And you think to yourself, hmm, I, I wonder if this is a trend. Is this something that's going to keep going? 
after another game, you realize that it is going to continue to be a problem, that Jordy Nelson is just not going to be the same type of fantasy commodity with Brett Huntley under center than he was when Aaron Rodgers was there. And in terms of maximizing your roster, you might need to think about cutting Jordy Nelson, as crazy as that may seem, right? I mean, this guy has been a, a top 10 receiver, you know, multiple times, like a very decorated fantasy player. But, you know, in that given circumstance, you need to be opportunistic. You need to be able to say, okay, this isn't working. What can I do? Now, if, if you own him, your first instinct, and, and you'd be correct to think this, would probably be, I should try to trade him first. Uh, but, you know what? Fantasy owners are smart, and if you play in competitive leagues, other people are going to see the same thing you saw with Nelson, that whatever is going on with Brett Hundley just is not working, and they might not be willing to trade much for Jordy Nelson. Now, maybe you can still get enough of a return that it's worth it, but if no one's really biting, if no one's really offering you something that actually makes you feel like you're you're making your team better, you know, just outright cutting him might accomplish that in a better way you know depending upon who's available depending upon what sort of player you can pick up and and that's going to vary from league to league and you know the depth of your waiver wire but that's the sort of stuff i'm talking about when i when i mean optimizing your roster being opportunistic and and taking advantage of you know every opportunity every data point that you gather during your draft during the season during the entire fantasy experience now the next section i have is related to that you know, opportunistic mentality. And I'm going to call this section taking out another mortgage. And this is about being willing to give up on your middling assets to go in on what's important. You know, sometimes in Monopoly, you have to mortgage certain properties that you own to get, you know, cash up front to either pay for rent somewhere where you you, know, you didn't want to land or to help yourself buy something else, whether it's another property or a house on a Monopoly that you already own. In terms of fantasy, I really want to relate this to the end of the year where handcuffs and other players who have more, you know, untapped or unrealized upside have a lot more late season value than your standard kind of run of the mill bench depth guys. You know, the players who you keep around for bye weeks because they are predictable assets, you know, maybe like a, a Sterling Shepard type or a Duke Johnson type at running back in a PPR format, like somebody who's not necessarily going to go bananas very often, but will be a steady source of of reliable points. You know, we're, this guy's going to give me eight to twelve fantasy points in most weeks. You know, within my scoring system, and that's why I want to keep him around. But you know, at the end of the year, when bye weeks are done with, your stud players are going to be able to fit into your active lineup every week. And with that in mind, you know, keeping you know some eight to twelve point guy doesn't really offer you much, right? Because even if your starter gets hurt, you don't necessarily want to put in some you know, replacement level or or average player, a bench depth guy, you want the upside of your injured player's handcuff or even better, your opponent's injured player player's handcuff. So if you own Tevin Coleman and your opponent owns uh, Devonta Freeman and Devonta Freeman gets hurt, all of a sudden you have a really great asset. But if you're just using that spot with for Tevin Coleman on someone, you know, who's just fully in a timeshare, like whether it's one of the Oakland Raiders running backs or something like that. There's just not a whole lot of value in that because even you wouldn't even want to plug that player in if you could or if you had to, right? 
And so just like it's okay to, you know, mortgage a property that you're not really planning to use, like that you're not really looking to make a monopoly out of, like maybe you just have one of the yellow spaces on the board, but, you know, the other two are owned by another player and you're not going to give him that monopoly because uh, you don't want to give him that sort of uh, advantage, but you don't necessarily need to collect whatever small piddling amount of rent is going to come out of that property, Right. And with that in mind, it's okay just to turn that thing upside down, take some cash right now, and put that towards a more interesting asset. Uh, Like I said, uh, another property where you might actually get a monopoly, uh, buying a house so that you can collect more rent somewhere else. Like This is the sort of stuff that you can do in fantasy near the end of seasons, where you're cutting the chafe to take more chances at at high upside, at something that's really going to pay off for you in a big way and help you win, not just something that's going to help you stay afloat or tread water because that's not the point like we play this game to win you play monopoly to win you know second place in monopoly like there is no such thing who cares second place in fantasy yeah maybe you you get a payout depending upon how your league works but there's no gloating in that there's no holding that over your friends i mean you want to be able to to take it to your buddies for for taking them out in fantasy and you have to make these harder decisions you have to be willing to you know uh, take more risks but also take smart risks, uh, take calculated risks and maximize your roster, chase that upside, go after the guys who are, you know, if they hit, they're going to hit big. Two sections left here. The next one, we're just going to call lessons in trading. And I noted this earlier in the show, but this is one of the things about Monopoly that really irks me is that because it's a board game, people tend to play these things pretty casually. Now, maybe you and your buddies are pretty cutthroat about Monopoly and that's different and no one's going to give something away without getting something reasonably valuable in return. But, you know, in my experience playing Monopoly, and again, this is mostly when I was younger, it's a more casual experience, and eventually someone's just going to get bored, or they're going to get tired of the game, and they want to do something to mix it up, or basically throw the game away so that it ends faster. And those are not the types of decisions that you can afford to make in fantasy football. You should never trade out of boredom. You should only trade if you believe it improves your team. And I would argue that even in some trades, if you're improving your team, but you're improving the other team too much, that might not be a deal you want to do either. Uh, I mean, other people are going to have different schools of thought on trading, and it's it's one of the more fascinating parts of fantasy. I'm not an avid trader, and that's probably coming through loud and clear in this analysis here, but when I do trade, I want to make sure that my team is at the very least improving in some way that I'm making a move that I feel like I have to make. You know, if I'm doing something just for the hell of it, what's the point? There's no, there's no thought process behind that. You need to be able to justify this somehow to yourself at the very least, if not to the rest of your league, you know, just to prove that, Hey, I'm, you know, I, (laughs) I'm not colluding with my opponent. I'm not trying to lose. I think this trade is good for me. Here's reasons X, Y, and Z. Like that stuff is important when you start to get into higher stakes leagues where people take it a little more seriously, take things personally when, you know, certain moves may not benefit them. Uh, I think you see that more in other fantasy sports, maybe fantasy baseball, where, you know, there are different categories you're trying to win. But in fantasy football, there is a, a, an element of like, you know, you need to be able to back up your decision and justify that to the other players in your league. Uh, and of course yourself, right? You want to be making a move that you believe in that you think is going to help you win the league. In Monopoly, that means not giving a Monopoly, you know, you know, all three of one color to 
an opponent, right? You know, you don't want to set them up to start building houses and hotels. Because once they do that, they're going to start collecting way more rent from you when you land on those spaces. So if you can keep those broken up, then you should do that. You, you don't necessarily want to risk landing on these, these high rent properties that other people own if you can, right? Like why give that up? Now, if you're getting a monopoly in return and you, through the trade, leave yourself with more cash to start building houses sooner... Uh, you know, especially if there are other opponents maybe circling around the board coming towards your properties, then maybe that's justifiable, right? That that could be a win-win. I get a monopoly, my opponent gets a monopoly, and chances are somebody's going to land on my stuff soon, and I'll reap a benefit from that. I'm going to make some amount of cash off of, you know, whether it may not be that opponent that I traded with, but it could be somebody else. And that's the kind of stuff I was referring to in fantasy where other league mates might see, oh, you know, you just traded your best player to the guy I'm facing head-to-head this week. And that sucks for me, right? You just gave up uh, Julio Jones, and Julio Jones is playing against a really soft pass defense this weekend. That bones me, Mr. Opponent. Why would you do that? Well, it's like, well, I gave up Julio Jones, but I got, you know, Tom Brady in my 2QB league, and I got this other running back piece that I really needed because I was a shorter running back this week. You know, again, you're justifying the trade. You're you're seeing how it can work for you in the short term and, and, you know, hopefully in the long term as well. Like, you set yourself up for value across the balance of the season. And I don't think this is any, you know, grand strategy that's, you know, unique to me that, oh, you know, you should be smart with your trades. But I do think it needs to be said that you shouldn't trade out of boredom. You shouldn't trade... uh, just for the the sake of you know a short term gain for you, but something that could be you know a very lucrative long term gain for somebody else. Like you, you need to think about again if you're trying to win, you need to think about well if I'm going to win, everyone else needs to lose. So if I set up my opponent too well, if I if I make this trade and even if my team gets better, if the other team gets you know a, an order of magnitude better than that, then you could be in trouble. Like you might just end up losing to that guy in, in the fantasy finals. Now. Nothing is that cut and dry, right? We can't necessarily predict exactly what's going to happen. You never know if injuries are going to happen. Uh, you know, you could trade for a guy and have that guy get hurt, or the guy you could trade away could get hurt and or, or get benched or suspended. Like, there's so many random things that could happen. You could trade for a wide receiver, and that wide receiver could be fine. He could be Jordy Nelson, but if his quarterback gets hurt, that changes everything. And that quarterback doesn't even necessarily need to be involved in the trade for you to feel the impact of that. And because we can't see this stuff with perfect clarity ahead of time, it really comes back to that justification, that thought process that goes into the trade. Am I making this trade for a good reason? What are the ranges of outcomes that could occur in this scenario? If I give up player X and get player Y, do I think that sets me up for a better overall opportunity to win this league? And if it does, then that's probably a trade you should make. But again, it it involves more than looking at just the raw points scored. Uh, the points per game to date, because again, past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results. So you have to try to forecast to the best of your abilities. And if someone asks you, why did you make that trade? Or if you, even if, even if no one asks you, you should be asking yourself that question in hindsight, should I have made that trade? You know, after the season plays out, whether you want or not go back, evaluate your decisions, think on them a little bit deeper and, and, and figure out, you know, did I have to do that? Was it a smart move given the information that I had at the time? And what have I learned since then that might, you know, that I could that I could try to apply to future scenarios where I have similar decisions to make?
And that brings us to the last section here. A short podcast, but this section might go a little long. I, I could get a little rambly here. What I want to try to do is apply the spaces on the Monopoly board to quarterback rankings, to something that's very important to two QB leagues and how we look at quarterbacks. Now, a lot of people, when they think of Monopoly, they think of Park Place and Boardwalk, those dark blue squares, man. They're so alluring. There's only two of them. So if you, it's easier to start building houses and hotels right away. You only have to get two instead of three properties. And the rents are great. You know, if, if someone lands on Boardwalk and you own it, uh, they're going to pay you a lot of money relative to the other spots on the board. Now, with that said, it's harder to land there. You know, you, you don't necessarily have the same opportunity to get to those squares. And the reason for that is right before the side of the board that has boardwalk on it and the green spaces for what it's worth, there's a space in the corner that says go to jail. It, it sends you right back to where you came from. And, you know, every time someone lands on that, that's an opportunity that they miss to land on boardwalk and park place and the green spaces. Not only is it harder to land there, but it's also way more expensive to buy those properties. Boardwalk costs four hundred dollars to buy just to get the property into your you know into your pile, whereas you know the spaces the orange spaces on the board cost you know one hundred eighty dollars or something like that. It's easier to acquire those pieces. People land on them more often, and there is because of that more value. I, I, and if we want to apply this to fantasy, I don't think there's a, a more perfect corollary to Boardwalk and Park Place than the top tier of QBs in a two-quarterback format like Superflex. They cost more to get. You have to spend early round picks on them. And yeah, when you have them in your lineup, they tend to generate more you know, revenue or value for you if somebody lands on them. But the other guys, the other players, the other spaces on the board are so much more affordable and they're so much more consistent. Or not more consistent, but they're just as consistent, right? People are going to land on those other spaces more often you know, especially those orange, yellow, and red spaces, the ones that are after the jail space, you can count on those properties. You can count on those being consistent producers for you, even though they're not quite as expensive or, you know, rewarding as something like Boardwalk or Park Place or the green spaces. There's an opportunity cost, right? We hear J.J. Zacharyson talk about this all the time. He's been on the show before. If you have to pay up for something like Boardwalk at $400, that's $400 that you could not have spent somewhere else on a property that people are going to land on more frequently on something that's uh, you know easier to acquire, easier to develop. Yes, there are three spaces of most of the other colors on the board, and that makes it harder to assemble the Monopoly. But you have to, again, you have to trust yourself. You have to trust your own strategy, your own analytical mind to be able to figure out ways to get there. Uh, you know, savvy trades, uh, you know, smart use of jail, you know, making sure that, oh, you know, I have two of the orange spaces, maybe I do want to get out of jail faster so that I can try to roll and land on one of those spaces, Like especially if it's one of the ones that uh, you would hit if you rolled a double, right? Because that gets you out of jail right away. The point is that you don't necessarily want the most expensive and you know money-generating, point-generating commodities in these games. You want the ones that assemble you the best strategy for overall winning. And, you know... And it's my belief in a two-quarterback format that you get that by waiting at the quarterback position, by taking guys who don't cost you as much, because that affords you the opportunity to go get elite running backs in the first round, elite wide receivers in the first few rounds. 
you start just as many of them as you do quarterbacks and usually more right you know with the super flex spot with a normal a flex spot you, you could maybe start up to three running backs maybe up to four wide receivers something like that depending upon your scoring filling up those positions is going to be just as important as filling out quarterback and yes quarterback scores more than running back or wide receiver on average they score more consistently but every quarterback has that advantage right like even the bad quarterbacks are routinely going to put up 12 to 18 fantasy points per week that's just how it goes they they touch the ball so much they throw so many passes relative to how many targets a wide receiver sees how many carries a running back gets Uh, there are so many running back committees now that that opportunity just is is so much harder to find and so when you have running backs that do get elite opportunity that get high volume uh, wide receivers same thing the guys who get a lot of targets the deandre hopkins the julio jones those types of players then they have a lot more relative value at their position they outshine the mid-tiers of their position in a way that the elite quarterbacks don't outshine the mid-tier quarterbacks this is why streaming has become such a popular strategy in one quarterback formats and just waiting on quarterback in the draft in general because the position is largely largely replaceable especially in one quarterback formats now two qb formats turn that on its ear a little bit it makes a much higher demand for the position on a week-to-week basis but still, when you are in a draft, a 2QB draft, people that you're playing against, yes, they could go and just you know take four quarterbacks in a row to start the draft and try to corner the market or something, get their own sort of monopoly, right? But that means they're just killing their running back position. They're killing their wide receiver position. They're killing their tight end position too because you know even if they can catch up at running back or wide receiver they probably can't catch up at both but even if they do catch up at one of those they're still not catching up everywhere they're not catching up at tight end and that advantage that they perceive they have at quarterback isn't actually there because the rest of their team is hot garbage there's just there isn't a full roster there there isn't a complete team and you want to try to win across your entire roster not just at one position and this is something that i always took issue with uh, in terms of zero RB, that that strategy that you know says you know go ahead and just draft wide receivers in a PPR format until round five, you know wide receivers and tight ends. Like the I, the theory is strong, yes. I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad strategy. I just think people go overboard with it. Yes, you want to win the flex, but you want to win everywhere, really. Like if you can win at running back, at wide receiver, at flex, at quarterback, you should try to do that. That is a good thing you want to dominate your league and make it not close right this is not rocket science this is something that everybody should want like you want to be able to tell that story and you want to be able to make it that easy for yourself to take down a league and if you just kind of blindly go in and say i'm going to ignore positions x y and z and just load up on one position and generate an advantage there that's fine but you have to do that knowing that you're going to be able to make up value at the other positions somehow now zero rb does a pretty good job of that in ppr because there are so many running back committees as i talked about just a a little while ago with so many you know uh, satellite backs out there in the league guys who can generate value you know pretty consistently maybe not elite you know numbers week to week but solid numbers that duke johnson type of player that i mentioned earlier uh or you know chris thompson was a really good example last year he overperformed but the the theory is the same you find a guy who is going to get you a consistent number of catches based upon the type of offense that he's in 
or the you know the the lack of other weapons on the team. Uh, you know, Chris Chris Thompson there is is a great example. Uh, and those guys, because they're not as sexy as you know the Le'Veon Bell's, the David Johnsons, the Ezekiel Elliotts, those running backs are available later. And if you can hit on enough of those cheap guys, you can make up for the fact that you didn't draft any early. And if you did that while also generating a big advantage at wide receiver, then zero RB can work. But that's not to say that you can't do the same thing the other way around, right? You you draft Le'Veon Bell in the first round, and then you draft uh, maybe Devonta Freeman or uh, Derrick Henry in the second round. And forgive me, I'm kind of just throwing names out here. I haven't looked at ADP in a while. Maybe these aren't realistic scenarios. But the point is, you can try to leverage the running back position and then find wide receiver value late. So for me, what it really comes down to is figuring out what positions you're good at scouting, you know, from a fantasy perspective. Where are you most adept at finding value, like, later in the draft? Which positions do you find easier to evaluate? And if you ask yourself that question, and the answer is, oh, quarterback, because, you know, they're they're largely they're replaceable. Like, this is my answer. Like, I think quarterback is the easiest position to evaluate for fantasy, if only because the volume for those players is relatively consistent. And with that consistency of volume comes more predictability, comes more data for you to draw upon and make smart decisions. Whereas, you know, the running backs, uh, you know, specifically in this age of so many committees, that's a little more difficult to, to figure out. But wide receivers probably even harder to figure out. And this is where part of, you know, zero RB comes from is the fact that, you know, those stud wide receivers are just as few and far between as the stud running backs, you know, and, and more so now than ever. We, we've seen that continue to happen over the past couple of years, you know, zero RB hasn't looked very good at all because the wide receivers aren't getting that that insane volume, uh, you know, on an individual basis as they were before. Teams have learned that, you know, you can spread the ball more. You can use all these different schemes to not really care about who you're throwing to, just that you're always throwing to somebody who's open, somebody who's in space who can pick up, you know, four to eight yards at a clip. And if if teams are doing that, you need to factor that into your analysis of these players, and that should dictate also where you think you can find value in the draft. Like if wide receivers are generally becoming more compressed, and, and that is to say if they tend to score closer to each other on average, you know, if, if it becomes a bigger middle class of wide receivers, then that means they're less valuable because they're more replaceable. This is the same argument for quarterbacks. Quarterbacks generally have similar value because they all throw the ball umpteen number of times per game for the most part there are some guys who don't get quite as much volume uh you know your Blake Bortles types but even those guys because they may not have elite volume but if they have efficiency and you know they throw in the red zone specifically or something like that then you can find value there but the point is just like quarterback is becoming flattened the the profile of those players as a group is becoming more clustered the middle class is becoming more densely packed Wide receivers seem to be doing the same thing. And with that in mind, the knee-jerk reaction might just be to say, oh, well, if wide receivers are becoming you know, more replaceable, if quarterbacks are more replaceable, then I have to just go out and get running backs. I have to go running back, running back, running back. But that's, that's not really it. That's not really the point. The point is that you need to look for the commodities that are harder to find, the ones that are less replaceable, right? And that doesn't necessarily only apply to running back. That you know still applies to those high-end wide receivers and to some extent to the elite quarterbacks. Uh, you know if you play in a league where everyone thinks like I do, 
and they devalue the quarterback position and they say, oh, I'm just going to wait. I'll take somebody in the middle rounds and I'll focus on running back and wide receiver. If everyone does that, if everyone says, okay, I'm going to go out and get the burgundy squares on the Monopoly board, I'm going to go out and get the orange squares on the Monopoly board, you know, if three different people get an orange square, nothing's ever going to get figured out, right? You're, you're, none of you are really gaining that much value because no one's building Monopoly there. No one's actually leveraging those squares on the board in an impactful way. And in fantasy, it's similar, right? If everyone goes in and says, oh, I'm just going to focus on the elite running backs, the elite wide receivers early, there's a breaking point somewhere. You know, where it becomes correct to say, well, the elite running backs are gone, the elite wide receivers are gone, I can take a second tier running back or a second tier wide receiver, or, well, wait, everyone's devaluing quarterback, and here's Aaron Rodgers in the, you know, the middle of the second round. Well, usually in a 2QB league, he goes in the first round. Well, should I pounce here? And if there isn't, you know, a comparable relative value at a different position, then the answer might be yes. Now, I don't know if the second round is is still, like, that's still probably too early for me, for the most part. Maybe not for Aaron Rodgers, but for, you know, a high-end quarterback. Uh, but, but it's all about the pace of drafting. It's all about what your opponents are trying to do and how you can use that information to your advantage, right? So in the end, there isn't a cut-and-dry strategy in terms of wh- which position to draft when. You always draft a running back in the first round. Well, we know that's not always going to work. Always draft a, two quarterbacks to start off your 2QB league. Like, well, if you have the last pick and the first, uh, you know, Aaron Rodgers, Russell Wilson, Tom Brady, you know, the top five QBs all go before it gets to you at pick 12 or pick 10 or whatever, and you're saying, oh, well, I have to take two quarterbacks here. I'm going to take Matt Ryan and Phillip Rivers. Where's the value in that? Like, you, you're, you're spewing value. You're just giving it up because those guys are so much closer to the other quarterbacks you can get later that it's not necessarily worth pouncing at that point. You should look to another position. And you can flip-flop this in every way you want. Again, it comes back to how do you define those tiers? How do you define relative value? Where do you think you're going to find value later in the draft? And you do that by doing mock drafts, by doing real drafts, honestly. like The more you play every season, the more you'll start to figure out, like, where are those breaking points in value based upon my projections, based upon how I think this season is going to play out, how I think this team is going to run its offense, things like that. So even in Monopoly, where you might know that the orange spaces are the best spaces or most valuable spaces on the board, if you don't end up with an orange space or two orange spaces to start the game, you have to hope that whatever you did land on is going to work, right? And you have to build around that. And maybe that is Boardwalk and Park Place. Maybe that is Russell Wilson, Aaron Rodgers, uh, Tom Brady, Carson Wentz, Deshaun Watson, whoever, however you want to spin it. Not everyone is going to be afforded the same opportunity to use the same strategy. It just doesn't work like that because not everyone can use the same players. Now, DFS is a totally different animal, right? Like, that's where, you know, everybody, if they want, they can pick, a, pick up a Park Place or a Boardwalk type of commodity. They can say, I'm going to overspend for something that I know is going to get me a lot of points. And I'm going to do that because I'm also going to pick up these light blue square type of players, these Baltic Avenue type of players, right? And so that game has its own separate sort of strategy with that in mind. And now, again, there are costs associated with that. And if you can do stuff, if you can find similar production at lower costs, that's good. But, you know, sometimes the right play is to pay up for a position in DFS. Sometimes it's right to go get that stud quarterback, that stud running back. And it depends on the format. It depends on what type of tournament or, you know, head-to-head or, you know, style of contest you're playing in. But you have to be thinking about this stuff. You have to understand where the value is in each of these commodities, just like you would a Monopoly board. 
And so that's it. That's all I got for this week. It's uh, kind of a different angle on the podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you have uh, you know any comments, I'd, I'd be happy to hear them. Um, if you want to suggest other games for this in the future, I'd love to listen. Uh, there, there are a few on my wish list, and at some point I want to do this with a guest who you know maybe also is into uh, the same sort of game as me. Uh, so if, if you're out there, if you're listening to this, especially if you are in the podcasting game and you want to talk deep strategy on you know some game that's you know unrelated to fantasy but secretly it is related you know you you've you've used strategies from one other game in fantasy i want to hear about that stuff i want to talk about that stuff this this is fascinating uh fodder for me to to run through i'm constantly thinking about this sort of thing anytime i play a strategy based game and yeah i I appreciate you all giving me the leeway to do this i mean i I guess i didn't need your permission here i am recording it i I decided to do this but but if you stuck with it this long i appreciate it i I hope you found it interesting i hope you found it enjoyable um if you want to hit me up on twitter uh again you can find me at greg sauce uh the site 2qbs.com is on twitter as well at 2qbs Uh, our email address is 2qbs at gmail.com and in every case you spell that out it's t-w-o-q-b-s for 2qbs Please subscribe to the podcast. Please rate and review the show if you wouldn't mind. That really helps me out. And we'll be back again soon. Probably going to take a little break here uh, leading up to the NFL draft. But we'll be back in your ears uh, pretty soon. You, You won't even realize we're gone. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Adios. This episode of the 2QB Experience was brought to you by the Fan Controlled Football League. It's a new professional football league where teams will no longer have a front office. Instead, fans control all the decisions, drafting players, hiring coaches, calling plays. Your path to domination is just an app away. Visit fcfl.io to learn more.